Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, and I've got a new guest with us this week. I'm really excited about this one. Um, um, author and YouTuber as well, um, um, Damon Garcia. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you've written. You, you've got a very. You've got a quite a successful YouTube channel, which is really really great. And you've written a book um, with an with a brilliant title. I love the title. It's called The God Who Riots. Um, yeah. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book, um, and quite inspiring. And for somebody who's like struggled with my faith recently, like I was saying beforehand, it's, it was open my, open me up a bit to, um, to my faith again, I think a little bit. Um, so, um, just yeah, tell us a bit about, well, about you and your story and how that, how the book started. Yeah, I appreciate it. And um, it's, yeah, The God Who Riots, and the subtitle is Taking Back the Radical Jesus. And I wrote it really for those of us who have grown up with a strong suspicion that Jesus was way more radical than what they're teaching us. And there's a lot of us who were growing up in perhaps more conservative Christian environments and then followed Jesus out of those environments. And people around us may interpret it as we're walking away from God, walking away from Jesus, walking away from our spirituality, when really it feels like we're being pulled out by something bigger. And I wanted to be able to articulate that, uh, of course, Jesus is a part of that journey. Like you're not, you've not gone astray. You've been on one long, consistent journey chasing after this uh, radical Jesus and this God that is just so much bigger than the boxes that were handed to us. And so the title is also a reference to Jesus in the temple flipping tables and pouring out coins, which is a classic story. I know a lot of people love who, who aren't even Christian. They They just like, uh, oh yeah, I'm interested in that Jesus for sure. Not, I don't know about any of these Christians, but that Jesus seems cool. And so that was always one of my favorite Bible stories. And I felt like that's also a Jesus that wasn't really taught to me growing up. But when that when that story would be brought up, it would be brought up in the context of like, it's okay to be angry sometimes if it's righteous anger. And Jesus got righteously angry this one time. But they didn't talk about like the context of what was going on in his demonstration. They didn't consider that this was a planned, organized demonstration, just like uh, him coming in on the donkey with people waving palm branches. It's to send a message. And he's deliberately flipping over the things that would put a temporary hold on the activities of the temple. He's not just flipping whatever is in front of him in a temper tantrum. And he uses that hold on its activities to say, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. And what I find really interesting is that a den of robbers isn't where people are robbed. It's where robbers go and hide to avoid being caught. And so Jesus is essentially accusing the religious leaders of his day of using their religion to hide and avoid the injustices going on 
in the world, like all over. And so I find that especially relevant today because we all know Christians who also use their religion in that way and seem to avoid injustice. And that's the kind of church I grew up in. It wasn't necessarily one that was constantly telling us to vote Republican or anything like that. It was one that just avoided all those issues altogether. And as I became an adult, I started to question that and want to explore a God who actually is not neutral, a God who takes sides in issues of injustice. And I felt like my faith actually led me to care about injustices in the world, just like Jesus's faith and the, the faith that the disciples led them to care about the injustices in the world. They didn't have to be a completely separate thing. And so, yeah, in the book, I, I talk a lot about that story of Jesus in the temple and then also talk about this radical stream throughout Christian history of Christians who also use their faith to empower them in that way. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that yeah, that image of Jesus is, 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 is very different, isn't it, from the one that a lot of us um, – grew up with i grew up in the church as well that was mm-hmm. um that was definitely not the jesus i grew up with it was like you know all peace and love and like you know and non-violence and not not yeah. taking sides and you know i think um that in hindsight feels like quite a privileged version of jesus um the yeah. kind of like not taking any sides at all um you know it's kind of a there's one. I mean, there is the, the like the both and kind of thing, but I, I which I which I get and I think is important. But like, but when it's when it comes to injustice, you have to take a side, whether you're on the side of justice or you know, or are you on the side of the oppressed or the oppressors? You know, you you can't be on both sides. Um, yeah, um, and that radical Jesus is a very different. Jesus, a very political Jesus, like you're saying, those those two things you talk about, the, the donkey um and and the temple were very intentional acts, weren't they? Um also uh, Jesus in the temple is repeating something that the prophet Jeremiah did. He also had his own demonstration in the temple. And that uh sentence you you turn uh my father's house to a den of robbers is him directly quoting Jeremiah when he had his temple demonstration. And so that's another thing growing up. I I didn't hear about Jesus as somebody who had, who had a passion for uh, following the Hebrew prophetic tradition. Whenever prophets were brought up, it was like, Oh yeah, they said things that were actually prophesying for the future for someone like Jesus to come. And that's why there's similarities and quotes and all that without considering actually Jesus knew all of what the prophets said and deliberately followed what they did and um, quoted them a lot. And it's like Jesus is within this Hebrew prophetic tradition and throughout the Hebrew Bible, the prophets are also saying similar things where it's like, we've forgotten about justice. You're prioritizing worship over justice. Like, are we taking care of the widows and the orphans and the foreigners? And so it's a, so that really inspires me too, for for Jesus to look at faith of his day and attach himself to the radical prophetic tradition within his faith. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I mean, what did that journey look like for you? How did you go from being in like the church of your upbringing to 
discovering this this Jesus who was very different to that and that kind of made you had to leave. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up in an evangelical church, but it was also Pentecostal. And my parents are going to church when I was two because they wanted to radically change their lives. There was drug addiction, alcoholism, and um, yeah, a lot of other stuff. And my mom's sister had started going to church. So they thought, I guess this is what you do when you want to change things in your life. And so they started looking for a church and they ended up at one at a Pentecostal one that had a heavy focus on deliverance ministry, which is about like delivering you from struggles and addictions and in an extreme sense, maybe even demons and things like that. But it was, they were transformed and they were able to get their life back on track. And um, it was, it was very beneficial for them. But looking back, I mean, that story was always told, like, this is what God did for us. And I believe that is what God did for them. But it's something I hadn't considered until I was much older was that a huge part of their transformation was finally having a community that supported them in their growth and in their freedom and their deliverance. And it was, um, and I, I always had a passion for that. Like, what is what is the potential of a community like that? And sometimes so many churches miss out on the potential. And so I felt uh, called to ministry when I was uh, 18, 19, and then did a little bit of Bible college. Now, now I'm 29, but I did some Bible college and ministry training in that world. And then I felt like if I'm going to be in a ministry position. This is a huge responsibility. So I got to study this stuff out. And so the more I studied, including the stuff they had to study in that Bible college, the more I disagreed with the particular theology of my denomination. And I spent years thinking I could change things from the inside, like many do, and just trying to make it work. And um, I was a youth and young adults minister for a while, and I was about to get my pastoral license in the denomination which would end if if I finished it would have ended with an interview with a panel of pastors asking me theological questions. And I knew I couldn't even get close to that part of the process because I wouldn't be able to answer their questions honestly. And that's when I knew like, I can't, I can't make it work at all. And so I um, left in August, 2017 and I was finally able to be honest about all the things that I'd been learning and the Jesus that I was passionate about. And uh, a huge inspiration, too, was liberation theology, which is a, a theological lens uh, really, like, explicitly uh, framed in Latin America in the 60s, although there was different versions of liberation theology before that, too, including black liberation theology. But I was inspired specifically by that Latin American stream being Mexican and it was all about God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed as they struggle for liberation. And as I continued being inspired by that framing of God, I started to see it everywhere. I started to see it all over the Bible, all over um, the Christian symbols. And it kept me close to the faith. And I, I uh, ended up following a path where I just wanted a radical alternative 
to the faith that I grew up with instead of walking away from it entirely. And so I discovered, yeah, the type of Christianity I grew up in was, was like a corner of global historic Christianity. And I realized there's so much more and there's so many ways to look at this. It's so much more beautiful and liberating and even biblical. And so I, yeah, so I was finally able to be honest about what I believe, started making a lot of stuff on the internet and then got a book deal. Now here we are. Wow. That's great. I mean, like, it's, uh, it's fascinating that like it was the more you educated yourself, yeah. the, the more you ended up moving apart from the people who were educating you that there's such a there's such an irony in in that like yeah um, i feel like they gave me the tools to grow and then i hit the ceiling and had a break free and so i think a lot of people experience that like something the denomination i grew up in had a heavy emphasis on supporting women in ministry and that whole denomination was started by women in the 1920s and so but but they're also um, against same-sex marriage and against gay people and trans people and all of that. And I remember reading different interpretations of the verses that are typically used against gay people. There's like these like five and there's a lot of scholarship on like how to read them within their context. And was Paul actually referring to like a dude with a boyfriend or was he referring to roman exploitative sexual practices and there's like it's complex but that's what uh biblical they call it exegesis which is like studying the historical context and the interpretation and all that that's what biblical exegesis is all about but what was interesting was they were able to apply good responsible biblical exegesis to the verses that seem to be against women in ministry and they talk about, okay, let's look at the context. Let's look at these Greek words. Let's look at what position women were in at the time. And there was even a little book on women in ministry that I had to read to get my license. And they, uh, it was all about that. But I felt like, okay, we know how to do good, responsible, biblical exegesis and interpretation, but you don't want to do it with these other scriptures. And so it's so weird to like learn these tools and then I just wanted to apply them everywhere instead of having these exceptions of like, oh, but we can't go too far that way or take these verses too seriously or um, interpret these verses differently. And so it was like a lot of energy of like preser- preservation. Like this is what we believe. This is the tradition and you can't question it. You can't get outside of the party line. And so it's, um, yeah, I think a lot of people have that experience. Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. Um, certainly, I found the more that I learned, the more I wanted to move away from, you know, what I was part of. Um, mm-hmm. What I started once I started that journey of questioning things and examining things and looking at context with everything. It, you know, um, you know, people started to have more concerns. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, you know, that, that old kind of, that old nugget. Um, yeah. So, so when you, when you left the church that you were part of, what, where's your spirituality taking you in terms of community and in terms of how you express, how you express that now in the world? Yeah, it was, it was really hard because it was a lot of relationships I had, um, 
locally with people uh, in other churches in my city, but also like across the state. I live in California of uh, other ministers within my denomination. And I was like on a path. I was, I was on a path that, that I had been looking forward to for years and it just got cut off. It was like my future became a complete blank slate. And it was, uh, yeah, very difficult to lose all those relationships. I think some people, when they leave uh, churches that they no longer agree with, they have an experience of some of those people or ministers reaching out to them saying, hey, let's go get coffee. I think we we or we should talk about your Facebook posts, like things like that. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, they just cut me off, complete mm-hmm. silence from every single person, and which is a different pain. And my theory is because they knew I was in ministry already; they knew I was smart, and so I think they just viewed me as like a lost cause. Like, well, oh well, I guess Satan got him or something like that. And and I get it. I mean, that's what you have to believe about people who question your tradition like that um, in order to keep your world from falling apart. And so, yeah, that, that was a very difficult and I had to go through a season of grief and in some ways I'm still, I'm still grieving that like there's times where I do still find parts within me that has not fully grieved. And, um, but for a while to get, through the internet and meeting people that were different from me. I also found this other church, uh, which is like an hour away from where I live because it's hard to find good churches. It's hard to find churches that are actually um, caring about the type of radical Jesus we're talking about. So I found one. And so now I've been a part of that church for some years. And I, uh, but also I have friends that, aren't even religious at all. Like I have in, in my city, uh, most of my friends are artists who um, create like music or videos and stuff like that. And I, I feel very supported by them. And it's so interesting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things. I've been just processing this over the last year. There's a lot of human experiences that I feel like I had in the evangelical church that I no longer can experience. One of them being a certain level of intimacy, like in a Pentecostal charismatic church, there was a, there was these worship nights where it was so emotional and people would get into these huddles and pray and cry with each other. And it's like, there's definitely a a component to it that is kind of manipulative, but there was clear compassion and care. Like I could bring an issue and they like, deeply cared and wanted to walk with me through it. And I felt like I lost that. But now uh, I've been able to get a lot closer with some friends over this last year. Um, and I I feel like I'm experiencing that intimacy that I'd lost. Or even that feeling of like kind of this euphoric feeling uh, or what would be the word? The uh, ecstatic feeling of being in worship and raising your hands and feeling this connection with the heavens and stuff like that. Uh, one of my friends who makes music were at his show a few months ago and the, just the whole vibe of the show and what he was singing, the songs he was choosing, the way he was singing it, we like naturally raised our hands. Like it was not forced at all. Whenever I did it in church, it was always kind of forced, but we just like naturally did it. And then I was thinking about it later of like, 
whoa, like you can have that experience outside of those uh, churches that you had left behind. And so it's, yeah, it's been interesting. There's definitely, when people go on this kind of journey, seasons of great uh, lack and loneliness and loss. But I think there's a lot of the things we may miss about those old environments that we could find healthier versions of it elsewhere. Because, I mean, God, now I believe like God is to be found everywhere. Like everything is sacred. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting experience that I've just been barely processing throughout this last year. That, that sounds amazing. Um, I've had experience like that as well. Like I have this community that I'm part of, this online community, and we have these Zoom dance parties like every oh, week. Oh, nice. Like where it's just about body movement and you just let your bodies just go. And like, and I've, I've done the same thing where like these songs have come on, which are you know, nothing to do with spirituality or faith or anything. And I just find myself like raising my hands up in the air. Cause I, I'm feeling this like energy around me. Like, and it's, um, it's like, yeah, the, the, the divine is in all things, right? Um, yeah. Everywhere. And you can feel it. You can feel that around you. Um, you just have to tune into it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's been an incredible experience for me. That's, that's what's kept my spirituality alive or in a way, like it's expanded my spirituality beyond mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, the context that it was in before. Um, yeah. So that's incredible. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, still having space for, for Jesus in that is, is a, is a really good thing as well, I think. Um, and so, I mean, like, the Jesus that you've discovered, how is that, how is he impacting your day-to-day life and, and how you engage with the world? Yeah. The, like I said, liberation theology is a big influence, which is um, has a heavy focus on God being on the side of the poor and the oppressed and eventually it started to just feel like, oh yeah, this is just basically what the Bible is, where there's like, throughout the Hebrew Bible, um, these stories written from the perspective of uh, the oppressed Israelites. And then when you get to Jesus's time, they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And it's like, I could see it, yeah, all over the Gospels now that Jesus is always choosing the side of those who are oppressed, those who are exploited, those who everyone would just walk on by and look past like the sick and the poor. And he says things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those um, who mourn. And then also says, woe to those who are rich, woe to those who are full, woe to those who laugh. And so he's taking this deliberate side and a blessing was a way of saying that God is on your side. God chooses to be on your side. And so it's, he was flipping this dynamic that was the norm in his society that actually it's the rich and powerful that are receive God's blessing that are favored by God. Um, and the poor and the sick, uh, maybe they got demons or problems like that. And so there was this, this narrative that Jesus was battling 
that he was constantly trying to flip and show that God favors the poor and the sick and the oppressed. And it wasn't exactly him saying, and God doesn't like anybody else. Like, I think some people get afraid with that language that we're just doing a different version of us versus them. Jesus knew that God loves everyone, but he deliberately said it about those who especially needed to hear it. Those who were very unfavored and unloved by society. That's who needed to hear it the most. And so I, so today I look at the power dynamics of our society and, and Jesus inspires me to be on the side of the poor and the oppressed of the, the working class. And a struggle for liberation does look like a radical flip and it looks radically different than the systems we have now. And I think, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes we could, we could, there, there are certain reforms that need to be made, but there also needs to be much more radical changes than simple reforms. And so I think Jesus's like radical vision of the kingdom of God, where the first are last and the last are first, is this kind of utopian horizon that should inspire Christians to go for the most radical alternatives to the systems we have instead of like just slight changes or incremental changes. It needs to be that and this horizon of total liberation, total equality. And so it's, it's interesting now it's like my faith does stretch my imagination but but it doesn't necessarily stretch my imagination of what could possibly be out in the heavens or in the spiritual realm. It stretches my imagination for the kind of world we could build here and now. And I feel very much um, uh, in solidarity with others who want to imagine a radically different world, whether they're Christian or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because we do live, we live in this toxic system which treats our bodies like machines and which oppresses people and you know if you don't fit the standard that they set then you are marginalized right whether it's race or disability or gender or whatever um and yeah that needs to it needs to be uh needs to be overhauled <laughs> needs to be replaced really doesn't it so, yeah but also i was gonna say yeah even more day to day i i think the there's there's this something that that my faith continues to inspire me to do is to be called be called beyond myself of those in my life who deserve compassion and help i think there's part of us are like would sometimes just go for the bare minimum but then there's another part of us that like but we need to actually like deeply care for our loved ones and those around us and there's this kind of extra step that i think we avoid a lot of times i think of jesus saying like going the extra mile or carrying the pack and uh or give them your shirt and your coat like i think faith there's like a healthier more liberative version of faith when when that is what it calls us to instead of finding the bare minimum and fitting everyone to a very reductive standard. It's like 
No, we have compassion and more because God inspires and empowers us to go the extra step and to go the extra mile and um, not just accept the bare minimum of compassion and love and care and justice. And so that's, um, yeah, I've, I'm constantly like, like we all are wrestling with that inside of me of like uh, doing, doing the bare minimum or not doing anything at all, being empathetic or apathetic. And uh, Jesus still challenges me. So yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so you talk about. In the, I mean, like you mentioned that the, in the book you you talk about some people through history who've who've tried to live out this kind of radical radical um, model of Jesus. Um, of the ones that you talk, of the ones that you write about, who was the one that I guess that you resonated with or that inspired you the most? Yeah, there's, there's a few. Um, there was this this uh, Nicaraguan priest named Ernesto Cardinal who participated in the Nicaraguan revolution against the military dictatorship and and attempted to build a socialist society. And he participated in that revolution and got a position in the new government um, over the Minister of Culture. And he started various uh, reading programs and uh, other things. And he was uh, condemned by the Pope because there's the basic canon law that if you're a priest, you can't have a government position. But it was more than that. It was this um, deep... Uh, disdain that Pope John Paul II had for various socialist movements and then also liberation theology in general. And so he went to Nicaragua and there's this picture and video online uh, of black and white of uh, Pope John Paul at the airport in Nicaragua and uh, Ernesto Cardinal sees him and kneels and looks up at him and the Pope is just wagging his finger down at him. And said you need you must fix your affairs with the church and i find that story so interesting i think there's like a funny element or surreal element of that happening but it also exposes that in that uh situation the pope had such a small view of what the church is it's the fact that he sees this priest going over and beyond and helping those in his country experience real liberation and real justice and real care and the pope is like what are you doing you need to fix your affairs with the church this isn't what you should be doing it's like i think for Ernesto cardinal was like this is the church this is what i was called to do this is what i've committed myself to by being a priest and by being a christian and so yeah i think i just keep being inspired by that by by many stories of people like, like there's this popular institutional Christianity that is perpetuating so much of the violence that we're fighting against. And then meanwhile, there are these Christians who see their faith entirely differently and are empowered to fight against the injustices we're facing, even when that requires them to fight against those um, within their faith. And so there's different stories like that. Another one, uh, Nat Turner, that, that I write about, um, who was... Uh, a slave that was on what was supposed to be the good liberal plantation where they didn't abuse their slaves as much or 
and when they taught some of their, their slaves to read. And so they taught him how to read, taught him uh, to read the Bible, and he became a preacher. And then he just started reading the other parts of the Bible about a God who frees slaves and who seeks their liberation, realizing like, oh, wait, hold up. This God that you're presenting me with is on our side and not on the side of those who have handed us this faith to oppress us and suppress us. And so Nat Turner starts getting these visions of leading this revolt and this ultimate battle that would lead to the end of uh, slavery. And so he leads the revolt. Then there's more revolts and there's the civil war, which is the end of Chattel slavery. And then I, and so I just think of like, yeah, the popular faith of his day was one that supported slavery. And yet he reclaimed the radical roots of his faith and found that, oh no, this is, you've got it totally wrong. This is actually way more powerful and radical than you all are realizing. And this God is actually on our side. Mm, yeah. Uh, two, two really powerful stories there, actually. Um, I, I think something I've realized too with both those stories and then a theme throughout the book that I didn't even fully realize until after, uh, it, it, like right when it came out, as I started talking to people about it, that there's this consistent theme throughout the book that God is bigger. Like so much, God is so much more than these reductive boxes we often put God in. And I think, yeah, so many people feel that. They, 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 they're inspired by this God and they end up in a community that shrinks God. And so, mm. yeah, that's what I'm trying to help people articulate as well. Yeah, because it's liberating. The liberator God is much more out of our control. Right? We can't. Mm -hmm. right? When people want a God that, in a sense, they can control, um, or a concept of God they can control, or a concept of Jesus they can control, because that's easier um, and it's safer. Um, but um, the real Jesus, the real divine, is is bigger than way bigger than that. Yeah, um, fantastic. Um, so, what do you what do you think this can look like practically for for us, like people who are reading this book? Um, like in our in the communities wherever we are, what what does living like this look like in a you know, in a practical way? What what small things can we do to start living more radically? Mm -hmm. uh, something I think about is, I first of all with churches, there's churches who catch on to this vision um, throughout. I mean, throughout the years, and who feel like, okay, this is what needs to be done in our city. Let's start a program without looking into the local organizations already in their city doing the work that they realize needs to be done. And sometimes they could do more harm um, without that experience, without that, that connection with organizations that are already doing it. And so I, would, I wish more churches would seek out uh, local organizations develop relationships with their leaders, the organization leaders, and try to see how they can help, whether through funding or even space or more people. And it's, um, 
I would like to, yeah, to see more of that. And, uh, and then for individuals, I think the same thing of looking into the organizations in your city, like mutual aid organizations. And I, I think once we look into that, then we can see like, okay, what's already being done in my city? What can I join in? And what's not being done? And then there's the conversation of, okay, is there something that needs to be started in my community? And how can we be of service? But I think the important thing too is to find other people who who share this vision. Find other people who also see the problems within your community where you can be of service. Um, and there is a it's it's there, there's a and when when people think okay I need to do this all by myself how can I be a good person how can I serve my community oftentimes they put it all on their own shoulders and think that they have to figure it out all by themselves but finding a community of people that is passionate about the same thing is really important and so I know it's hard to a lot of people live in towns where it's difficult to find that kind of community locally but it could be small as well it could be a few of you and be able to yeah have a better understanding of the needs of your community and I think that that's like the work of God right there whether Jesus's name is attached to it or not it's uh very much yeah I think what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the work of God Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Um, yeah, we can all do our own little bits and pieces, um, even on our own. Um, there's probably things we can do. Um, yeah, and everything makes a difference. Um, so just like to finish, like what is, if there's one thing like one message that you have learned, one thing you've learned, one thing from the book that you, you know, that everyone, you think like everyone needs to hear this, like the absolute like heart of your mess, heart of the, of what you believe and what you've learned. What would it, what would that be? Hmm. That, uh, There's there is a lot of awesome Christian theologians and Christian communities that have a better, healthier, liberative interpretation of the faith. But as we all know, it's uh, it's kind of the fringe. It's not the, the most popular version of Christianity, and the much more popular and powerful version of Christianity is one that consistently justifies the oppression we face. And I want people to realize that by transforming our systems and building new new systems that actually um, enact justice and liberation, that is when healthier, liberative versions of Christianity can become the norm. I think sometimes we may think if we could just preach more and get people on the same mindset more then things will change but it's often the opposite because people need a different world to have space to change different material conditions in order to consider another way of thinking and believing 
And so I, and I think a lot about like, um, yeah, that period of the abolition of chattel slavery before that abolition, most white Christians were pro-slavery. And then after is when they had space to start considering a God who was against slavery. And that always happens where like during, during that struggle, people may say, Oh, you're, you're trying to get rid of something that God set in place. And then after it's like, this is all part of God's plan. That's just how it goes. And so it's, uh, it's, I think that's really important to transform people's material conditions to open up space for them to think differently. Like another thing I always hear about uh, in society is the message of love yourself and be good to yourself. And um, it's, it's very difficult to do in a society that constantly devalues us and reduces us to our labor power. Um, and in this struggle, struggle to get ahead in any workplace as we're um exploited by those who who uh we sell our labor to and so there is uh it's when we're able to be treated better then we could begin to love ourselves better and so i think constantly i'm trying to flip that it's like if we can change our conditions then we can think and believe differently it's not the other way around. And so, yeah, I, I wish more people could realize that. And so something that I'm trying to do is inspire action, period. I'm not trying to make people Christians like me. And I think once uh, when we're able to do action and change things, then there's a possibility of there being more Christians like me. But it's like the action is the priority, the the uh it's the work and so yeah it's been a big thing for me thank you thank you for sharing that this has been a really good conversation i've learned a lot um i'm sure other people listening have learned a lot too um where can people find your your work you can find me at damongarcia.com and you get the book uh from there too wherever books are sold and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at who is Damon. You follow me on there. Message me saying, "Hey, I listen to you on the Poema Podcast. That'll be awesome." <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that's I'm on YouTube too. Just search Damon Garcia. And um, yeah, so that's what that's that's what I'm doing. Really, is making videos and um, I just wrote this first book of mine. So I appreciate all the support. Yeah, doing good. Highly recommend uh, following Damon and all those, all those places, and get hold of that book as well. Um, for sure, uh, it's great. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Damon. It's been really great having you on here. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody.